I imagine many of you have gone into uh, small businesses primarily and gone up to the cash register and seen that framed picture, right, that's right there. And, and what's in the framed picture? Oh, the first dollar. That's right. A dollar bill, typically. It's kind of a traditional thing, isn't it? Someone starts a business and they dream about it and they work and they labor and it finally comes into fruition and there it is, the first fruits of their work. The, and, they, and they put it on the wall and they say, that means it started and that's, that's what our goal is and, and we have hope now because we've earned our first dollar. There's just such a uh, powerful picture that's a part of it. It's a, it's a celebration of sorts. It's, that's what we started this place for and it gives us hope and expectation for the future. It's really the first fruit of a business venture. And if the person were a farmer, I would imagine they want to nail an apple to the wall or something like that, but it just wouldn't last very long. But there's that, that first fruit that is a, is a picture of what the person longs for in a sign of hope and expectation to come. And um, in the book of James, uh, if you notice as we were reading it, at the very end of the passage we looked at, God actually describes us as brothers and sisters in Christ as a kind of a first fruit. That's what his longing is, to be able to work in our lives in such a way that um, our life actually becomes a picture and God says, that's my first fruit. That is what I was after. That is why I've, why I've, I've been at work in this person's life. So that you actually are, in some ways, God's pride and joy. That's what he wants for you, that you would be his first fruits. And we look at this in the context of the book of James, and we realize that um, God wants us to pay attention to his direction in such a way that we can become that sort of a, that sort of a person. We can live that way. Uh, we we uh, spend much time in our society thinking about wealth and how we will acquire it. And in James, James is actually talking about wealth as well. And next week we'll talk more about that when we get to issues of favoritism, getting into the specifics of it. But James is beginning here to talk about this theme of wealth. You see, when we oftentimes think about wealth, the question is this, is how will I get more? How will I get what I need? And James is actually encouraging those that are willing to listen to ask another question. Um, what does it do for me when I've got it? And how do I need to be careful in the process? And in the section of scripture we're in this morning, we will find a warning in regards to wealth and the kind of the ways we typically think about wealth. We will also see a fork in the road where we get to decide which way we might go. And then we see an imperative, really. It's an invitation, but for those of us that are trying to follow Jesus, there's an imperative here as far as the way we go in order for us to experience the joy and the completeness that we read about last week when we looked at the first couple of verses of it. So let's look at this passage. And first of all, I want us to note this, the, the, the imperative here to think soberly about the pursuit of possessions. We must think soberly about the pursuit of possessions. You know that little bumper sticker that says the one who dies with the most toys wins? Well, the possibility is that the one who dies with the most toys might actually lose. And James talks about what that um, loss might be like, what the dangers are, the warnings are, regarding poverty. Now, let's just set the table a little bit on this, and let's figure out who in the room, um, uh, for whom in the room does this matter. And there is a website, actually, called the Global Rich List. I don't know if you've seen this before, but uh, I, we're going to actually punch into it, and um, 
I have to actually give it to the, is it there? There it is. So first of all, let's figure out what our income is, right? And we're just going to go to Wikipedia, Prairie Village, Kansas, median income in 2000 for households in the city, you can see, was $58,685. So we're going to punch that one in. Let's go back to the global rich list. Remember, it was, what is it, 58,685. So here's what we do. We set our location, United States. What was it, 58, 58,685. That's, uh, and show my results, and let's see what we end up with here. We are the top 0.2% of the richest people in the world by income. That's it. It tells us we've got 12 million people ahead of us, and we've got billions and billions of people behind us. So when we talk about being well off, when James talks about being well off, um, he is talking about us. Uh, there's a concern for us in regards to that. So let's look then at what this looks like, to think soberly about the pursuit of possessions. There are three warnings here, and the first one is this. There's a poverty found in an identity that can be purchased. That's what a person who's wealthy can do. They can actually believe that their identity can be purchased. The reference here in the text is to what one takes pride in. The context here is wealthy that are looking for status through their riches. In fact, uh, this, is, this was the path towards status in the ancient Near East, particularly in this area. You see, what had happened is that the Romans had come in and they had created a very peaceful place and a strong governance model. And so for those who were trying to gain status, a name for themselves, there weren't many paths open to them anymore. One of the typical paths was to join the military, become a hero, and have your name lauded for, for generations to come. The other possibility was for you to get into government and, and have an official role in the leadership of the, uh, of the uh, society. But when Rome came in, they established peace, so there were no more opportunities that had to do with warfare. And when Rome, Rome came in, they sent most all of their own people in, so there were very few opportunities to have the status of a title or a role in society. So what was happening? Many of the people who had wealth decided, I'm going to get it another way. And so oftentimes families, there are families that even bankrupt themselves financially in order to buy something, to create something in a city that could have their name attached with it. So for generations to come, their name would have, um, have meaning in that community. That was their identity. I will buy my identity. In fact, there was a letter written to one of the emperors of Rome complaining about what was happening here. And says, there are so many people that, in cities that have invested money building city structures and places uh, for, for the purpose of their name, either as a, as, a, as a city or as a family important in the city, that he said, we're just bankrupting our economy. We're filled with all of these structures and there's no real wealth being created anymore because wealth was meant to establish identity. That's how I make a name for myself. And that's what we're talking about here. It talks about taking pride. This is more than being happy about having wealth. This is about a pride that's associated with it. Pride is, I've incorporated this into my identity. It's part of who I am. It is a distinguishing trait for me. And here is the danger of wealth. Wealth is dangerous because it can become my identity. 
And I know what this is like. A couple years ago, my daughters were nannying for a family in our neighborhood, and the guy had this incredible car parked in his garage. It was a Ferrari, late model, convertible, paddle shifter Ferrari that could go from zero to 60 in the back parking lot. I know, because I did it. And back again to zero, actually. See, my kids came, showed up. It was the end of the summer, and the dad said, hey, you guys want to have, have a day with the Ferrari. Can you believe that? And so they're driving this $250,000, $300,000 car up to the front door of the church, and they pop out, and they say, Dad, do you want to drive this thing? Do I want to drive that thing? I want to drive that from zero to 60 in the back parking lot. And then I took the thing, and I just drove around, pulled up in front of a coffee shop, and I just tell you what happened to me when I got out of that car. It was like, I hope everybody is watching me right now. <laughs> I'm a big deal. Isn't it interesting how the stuff you have can be incorporated with what you want people to think about you? And I didn't even own it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just a faker. But that's what happens with stuff, doesn't it? I, I can actually buy stuff, have stuff, because it makes me something. It can establish my identity, the car I drive, the clothes we wear, the house we live in, the vacation we take. And the danger of wealth is this, is that there's a poverty of an identity that is as superficial as the stuff we have. There's another danger here, a warning here, and that is a possibility of poverty that comes as a result of the protection that can be purchased. The poverty of protection from life's common trials. One of the dimensions of wealth is the ability it has to solve problems for us. We can actually make choices because we have wealth. I've got the capacity with my resources to pick that or to pick this. That's not the case when those resources are not available. And so I've got stuff in my life and I've got a challenge in front of me. Do I want to choose comfort or do I want to choose discomfort? Who's going to pick discomfort? And I've got the capacity right there to pick comfort. Do I want hard or do I want easy? Well, if I've got the capacity for easy, why would I choose hard? Do I want it quick or do I want the torturous agony of slow, and I can solve my problems. I can, if I have a problem with my neighbor, I can just build a bigger fence. I can buy a house in another neighborhood. I can, I can change my gym membership. I can buy conveniences, and I can not only do it to make my life easier, I can do it to make my kids' lives easier. I can actually make it easier for them. And there are people that are telling me that as a good parent, that's what I ought to do. And it's hard to fight against that when I have the resources to make that choice. And you see what James is talking about here. Have you ever realized this? There's actually the possibility of a poverty in protection from common trials. 
In fact, James prefaces, it talks about the irony that those in humble services, in humble circumstances, in verse 9, ought to take pride in their high position. They actually have more than we do. They can get the, the pathway to maturity and completion, to lacking nothing, is actually more possible for them because they can't buy their way out of the trials that equip them to live their life. So for those of us that are characterized by wealth, we just have to acknowledge there is, a, there is a possibility of a poverty here by virtue of what we have. And then there's another element of this that's a warning to us, and it's the poverty of short-term beauty or temporary beauty, the poverty of brief beauty, and we see this in verse 11. Uh, it, talks about, it talks about the sun rises and the plant falls and the beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade even while they go about their business, their, their life is fading. There's, there's, but there's a beauty to it that is so intriguing and appealing. You know, when Paul talks about life, he talks about life as being but a vapor that's here shortly and then vanishes. When James talks about life, he talks about it as a flower. This is taking it a step forward. It's something that's beautiful, that captures my attention. And I'm so enamored by it, drawn to it, attracted to it, that I, that I fail to realize that I've been attracted to something that can't last. In fact, James says it passes away, it withers, it falls, it's destroyed, it fades away. James uses all of those words. They're the unwarranted attractiveness of it that is appealing to me. It's that beautiful, glittery, shiny package that just looks so gorgeous, and then I take it and I unwrap it, and I'm disappointed with it because it just wasn't all that I hoped that it would be. And that's what we see here too. And the warning is don't be fooled in the end. Don't, 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 don't focus your life on, don't set your heart on something that's beautiful and temporary. Here's some of the challenges. David Myers, in one of his books published in the early 1990s, actually did a research-based study on the pursuit of happiness called The Pursuit of Happiness, who is happy and why. And he noticed this as he did his research. This is, this is technical research. He discovered this. Increasing wealth does not in any way add to a person's self-perception of joy or happiness. A person's increasing wealth does not in any way add to a person's self-perception of joy or happiness. Boy, that just seems wrong, doesn't it? I mean, because I can see myself happy on the other side of that acquisition. And yet the statistical data says over and over again is it doesn't accomplish those things. In fact, the level of perceived joy is essentially the same regardless of age, gender, race, education, location, or even the presence of tragic disability. You may say, well, I just don't believe it because I got that next thing. And here's a warning for us. You can not believe it and go for the next thing or actually wonder if a God who is good and beautiful is telling us something that is exactly what we need to hear. He's not, sell, he's not saying here, sell everything you have. He's saying, have a sober, sober assessment of the things you have because there's a real possibility that there is poverty in that very thing. At the very least, it doesn't last. And God wants to talk to us about something called enduring wealth and invites us into better pursuits 
And this is where we come to the fork in the road in this text, actually. And the invitation is this, for us to invest in things that never die. Invest in things that never die. Now, I want you just to reiterate, this is not about God saying we ought to have less. It's ironic, actually, that Paul, uh, James continues to incorporate the language of wealth and acquisition even when he talks about things that aren't physical, uh, uh, temporary resources. It's, it's used, the language of wealth is used for the pathway to maturity and completion. How rich, James asks, would you like to be? How rich would you like to be? How about this? How about be a person lacking nothing? If I could gain that, if I could be a person lacking nothing, and James says, that's the kind of wealth God wants for you. To be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Can I give you that? This is not about a takeaway. And there's other language about it. And who gives? Who is the one that gives the most and gives the best and gives the enduring thing? It is a God, it says in verse 5, who gives generously. You want generosity? God wants to give you everything you need. So he's inviting us to invest in things that never die, that actually allow us to acquire the kind of wealth that endures. And we will see this in the book of James. We'll see it here and we'll see it as we continue on through. This is typical for uh, what is wisdom literature of some sort. There's this path here and there's a fork in the road and we can take one fork or we can take the other fork. There's a choice between the crown of life in verse 12 or the birth of death in verse 15. Did you see that in the text? There's actually an option for the crown of life or the birth of death. Life and death. Here are the two paths. Traditional wisdom is, picture, is a picture of two ways. The way of life and wisdom or the way of death and foolishness. There's the fork in the road. Which will you choose? The context here is the context of wealth because it is so relevant. It was relevant to them and it's relevant to us. But the question is always the same. When you come to a decision that you didn't make in your life, will you choose life or will you choose death? Will you choose the thing that brings riches that abide or will you bring the thing that brings death to the people around you? And so we look first at this invitation to receive the crown of life. The reference here is not to a crown that is an expression of victory like in the uh, 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 um, athletic games, nor is a crown that refers to a symbol of authority like a king. It is a crown instead that is an expression of a person's accomplishment and his connection. We see that in the book of Proverbs when the Proverbs talks about a son who listens to his father's instruction and is listening to his father's instruction, it says, is like a garland to grace your head. A father comes up to his son and he puts a garland on his head and he says, I am so proud of you. You have done, you have done the exact right things to live a life that is full and complete and mature. And they put a garland of grace on one's head. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4 where he talks about you are my joy and you are my crown. There's a sense of endearment and pride that becomes a treasure. In the wisdom letter, Sirach 6.31 talks about wisdom as a crown of gladness. We're speaking here about the Father who is the giver of good and perfect gifts 
enduring good and perfect gifts, of a God who is good and beautiful, who wants for us to lack nothing, nothing now and nothing for eternity. What son doesn't long to have a father that says, puts a crown like that on his head and say, I am just so proud of you and so grateful for the choices you made and the preciousness of that, of that, of that embrace. Who doesn't want that? And God says, I want, you to be, I want you to be rich like that, sons and daughters of the Father. I want you to be rich like that. That's the crown of life. On the other side, we see the birth of death. What an interesting, what an interesting connection of words, really. The birth of death is, um, uh, is, is uh, this path that it's possible for us to take as well if we resist the Father if we reject his character and, and who he really is. We can, it says, get knocked down and dragged away. And here's the sequence of that path towards death. We have evil desires. There are still some of those that are yet unredeemed in us. God's doing a work and we grow into maturity. And while we're growing into maturity, he's working on those things that are not yet fully redeemed. And those evil desires can, can draw us away. Our desire awakes something we see or something we, we notice or something we feel is enticing to us. And it wakes it up. And once it wakes it up, it begins to insist. Desire begins to demand. It begins to need and long for. It's not that I'm just simply interested in it. I'm discovering I need it. I, 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 I've, I've got to have it. And so desire wakes up and then it demands and then desire is granted. It, it, we give it birth. It lives. It becomes a part of my world. And I, I give birth to sin. I give it permission to live in my life and to be present. And like anything that is born, it then grows up. I remember when I was a young uh, a teenager, and my dad was buying, mom and dad were buying shoes for me three times a year. Drove my dad crazy. You know, you didn't even wear them out yet. I said, I'm growing. That's what happens. When something is born, it grows. When desire gives birth to sin, it grows. We can, we can hide it, but that's what happens. It grows, and sin grows larger and larger. And it not only grows it does something else. It gives birth. It reproduces itself. And it creates death. And how many of us haven't seen that lived out in our own life or in the lives of others where that thing that was hidden for so long finally is out in the open and, 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 and death is propagated because of it? Harm and disarray and anger and broken relationships. That's what happens. That granted desire gives birth to death. Now, we would say, you know, if only we could see the impact of that little tiny desire at the outset. Because it just seemed so innocent. It was a simple urge. And it was given space, just a little bit of space, and then it just grew and it was quietly nurtured, perhaps even secretly nurtured and fed. And then there it was, a, 
a full-blown um, assault on my life and those around me. And the problem is, is it's just so deceptive, which is exactly the reason why James warns, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. And so here's the fear. What if I am? What if I'm deceived? How can I protect myself from going down, there's the fork in the road, and I go down the fork that actually leads to destruction, and I don't even know it when I take the first steps. And here's what makes it even more difficult. There are tests in this, con- in this uh, text, and there are temptations. Tests and trials and temptations. And do you know that in the Greek, actually, both words are the same word. They're the same word. And in English, it's actually letting us know what James means to convey by it. One is a trial and actually gives birth to life. And the other choice is a temptation. It is succumbing to temptation. It is a choice to embrace the sin of it, and it gives birth to sin. And wouldn't it be nice if they came with labels on them? And I knew, okay, this is a trial. This is good. This is beneficial for me. This is beneficial for my kids. Everything's going to be okay. How, how can I make that decision? How can I protect myself from it? And James actually tells us there is a way. There is a way to walk down the path that leads to the crowd of life. In the midst of all of the stuff going on, this is the way to actually cultivate desire. You say, what? Actually, the text talks about two desires. There's a desire that is evil, but James actually tells us to choose a desire that is good. And here's the path towards life. Worship the Lord. It's right there in the text. The person, in verse 12, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those that love him. That's the path towards life. The problem isn't that we have desire the problem is that we've placed the desire in the wrong position. God is inviting us to worship the Father as the means of pursuit of wealth that endures. The means of us acquiring wealth that James wants for us, that we long for for ourselves, the only path to it is a choice to worship the Father. That's what gets us there. When my life is characterized by worship, my direction will be characterized by the certainty that trials actually are trials that bring me to maturity and completion. That's what we see here in the text. And James talks to the people there about the reason why they can worship God. And they're great points. He's talking about God who actually is a God of absolute certainty that you can trust him. Things don't change like the lights, like the shifting shadows. In that context, Actually, the deity that was most prominent in their setting was the goddess Fortuna. And Fortuna is the goddess of fortune or the goddess of chance. And the, thing, the thought was this, is that, you know, you just can't know. Gods do what they want to do. Some people are rich, some people are poor. Some people are rich and then they're poor. You just don't know. You just can't count on them. In fact, they'll toy with you, which is part of the reason why James raises this question about, do you actually think God is that way? Would he do that? 
But in that context, the idea was that that's the way the gods are. And James introduces to his hearers a perspective of God that actually allows us to worship him. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. In fact, he is the God of the universe. He created those lights. He isn't subject to them. He actually made them. And although light might shift back and forth, the God who made them is constant and certain. He is the God of the universe. He is the God that rules, and he is the God that is characterized by goodness and beauty and faithfulness. The picture here for Christians is the picture of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what's constant, it is this, that God loves his children and God forgives them. That will never change. It will never change in your life. That God showed grace to you when you gave your life to him, when you made that decision. And he will be characterized by grace throughout all of your life. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't treat us as our sins might deserve. He is constant and uh, can be counted on. And so in the book of James, James actually talks about this particular character trait of God because it can invite them into worship. And worship is going to be necessary when they come to the fork in the road. And so for us, the same thing is necessary. Maybe not these particular themes about what God is like, but something. I believe that there's something in your life that God wants you to know about who he is so that you can be fueled by, empowered by worship. What is it? What will allow you to walk out of here this morning and choose the path of, work, of life? What do you need? What does God want you to know about him? Perhaps something you read. Perhaps it's something you hear musically. Just, as, just yesterday, actually, my youngest daughter, she was on her way to college. I dropped her off at the airport yesterday afternoon. It was kind of hard because I'm not going to see her for a couple of months. You know, you always wonder about your kids. Are they going to be okay? And when we were in the car, my daughter just said, Mark, Dad, Papa, actually. <laughs> it's, it's Papa in this family. She says, I want you to hear a song. And she, uh, she popped it in the radio. And it was this incredible worship song that she's just heard. And it was, uh, this, uh, You Make Me Brave. Beautiful, beautiful worship song. And we sat there. And we listened to it. And it was magnificent. And I know her life. And I know her, her, what God has been doing in her life. And just giving her the capacity to be brave in the midst of circumstances. And she said, Papa... I just listened to this song. He says, I rolled down my windows and I blasted to whoever will hear and I just sing it at the top of my voice and I just sing and I cry and I sing. And I thought to myself, she's going to be all right. She will be all right. And God wants that for you. To worship. To worship. Enduring wealth is marked by a depth of worship. Enduring wealth is marked by a depth to our worship. So, how will you worship this week? What will it look like for you? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. How good and how rich 
and relevant it is to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us even now about what it means for us to walk from this place and invite you into the depths of our heart and our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.